Beloved, as we continue worshiping this morning, we invite you to turn in your Bible or Bible apps to the book of Genesis, the 21st chapter beginning in the 14th verse. Let us receive the word of God. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Do not let me look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. Beloved, let us pray. God who sees all, encourage us in these few moments to widen our vision. Help us to imagine what it would be like to embody the boldness and strength of your daughter, Hagar. Turn our attention to that which gives life instead of the voices, internal and external, that tell us we're less than and not enough. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I am grateful to be with you at the start of your series on intersections. I identify as a brown woman ordained in an institution that never sought to ordain women, much more Southeast Asian women. And my job is to reflect on scripture compiled without Hagar in mind. When systems are not made for us, God provides blessing, gives us what we need, and revives us to go our own way. Sharing membership with you in our fractured and fragile United Methodist Church is as though I am a plant whose roots are watered in another garden. I I had to be. I am the daughter of Filipino immigrants, intelligent, spirit-filled people, hardworking, of course, who migrated to California. While I and my sisters are Cradle United Methodist, we were often the only kids of color in a sea of white churches that my father was appointed to throughout rural Iowa. If I were to be of any help and support, 
to the Filipino immigrant church that sent me to seminary. Shout out to Beacon United Methodist Church in Seattle. I would have to divest from white ways of knowing, storytelling, and preaching. If I were to honor the elders who stuffed an occasional $20 bill in my pocket as they pulled me in for a hug, blessing me in prayer and pocket money, I would have to learn to bring the gospel to life in ways that honored indigenous ways of being. The quickest way to dishonor them would be to hide the parts of myself they knew and loved and celebrated in the pursuit of bringing God's shalom, wholeness, I mean, but also me to life. A garden opened up in my time at Wesley Seminary just up the road from you all at Foundry. And I soaked up the water that flowed from womanist, mujerista, and other liberation theologies. But I didn't know how to hold the tension of being a second generation Filipino woman learning theology in a predominantly black and white context. I would either do it the white way or I would copy the posture of black clergy. This is the tension. This is what it means to live in a world of increasing diversity and intercultural reality within institutions that are slow to adapt. So I leaned heavily on theologians, on women who facilitated God talk, who themselves had lived experience of marginalization and resilience. Even if they didn't look like me, it made all the difference to my understanding of our collective liberation. I found myself at crossroads time and time again. Just as in childhood, I would often be the only brown woman in an all-white church or the only Asian-looking person at a Black church revival. Socialized as an Asian-American, I was taught to not rock the boat and to fit in wherever I could, to always excel, but to do so with great humility, almost to the point of erasure and invisibility. What are you? Well, where are you from? No, where are you really from? Are questions I've been asked all my life and it has only accelerated since I began serving as a pastor within this predominantly white institution. The perpetual foreigner continues to loom as a shadow over my witness and work. But instead of seeing my identities as a curse, the gifts of these liberation theologies remind me that I come from a place that I can be curious about, that I come from a people, that I come from women with stories to tell, that I come from a culture that assigns value to particular things, practices, rituals. None of these can be erased and all of them are integral to how we experience the world, to how we understand our God at work. Womanist theology itself is a gift of intersections and a central character who helps inform our theologies is the witness of Hagar. As Dolores Williams wrote in Sisters in the Wilderness, a seminal work in womanist theology, there are striking similarities between Hagar's story and the story of African-American women. Hagar's heritage was African from Egypt and Hagar is enslaved. Black American women had emerged from a, a slave heritage and still lived in its long shadow. Hagar was brutalized by her slave owner, the woman named Sarah. 
the narratives of enslaved women in the United States and even narratives of modern day workers tell of brutal and cruel treatment from the wives of slave owners and from contemporary white female employers. Hagar continues to speak to us today. Dr. Will Gaffney and the womanist Midrash comments that Hagar's story has a little something for everyone. From enslavement on this continent and abroad, to all the resistance and revolutionary spirit that has ever risen up against oppressive forces, Hagar, she writes, is the mother of Harriet Tubman and the women who freed themselves. I see God's return of Hagar to her servitude as the tendency of some religious communities to side with the abuser at the expense of abused women and their children. Ultimately, Hagar escapes her slaveholders and abusers and receives her inheritance from God, and God fulfills all of God's promises to her. You see, beloved of God, the God of life does not desire for us to stay captive to death-dealing forces. Hagar, another perpetual foreigner, knew this truth. She could not stay bound to Sarah, and even though it was a great risk to leave, she went. To the white folks at church today, who is Hagar for you? Who is Hagar for me? Though I've been invited into black church communities, and though I'm deeply accompanied and formed by African-American friends, I cannot appropriate these historical and cultural stories as my own. It is my responsibility and all those who love and celebrate Black women to explore Hagar's story beyond the Black and white paradigm that is so often the framework for race and class in the United States. For me to invoke the name of Hagar is to invoke the woman who exists at intersections, the migrant woman who labors to harvest our food, the indigenous woman who serves in Congress, the Filipino nurses who are frontline workers during this pandemic and who have the highest mortality rates out of all Southeast East Asians. And beyond those who identify as women, Hagar to me is the patron saint of those who embody multiple layers of identity. I imagine her as a saint, the patron saint who receives prayers of those who are enslaved and yet hold great power, much like Hagar. She hears the prayers of those who are frontline workers that in this pandemic have quickly become disposable. She sees the plight of sex workers who are celebrated during pride events and yet killed at high rates because of the color of their skin and for how they break gender norms all in one What I know as a clergywoman of color in a mainline denomination is what those who have come before me have long known and experienced. That we are set within what Bell Hooks calls an interlocking system of domination, white supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchy. Our church is set within these interlocking systems of domination in as much as our schools, our homes, and even our relationships. 
we must read history clearly that as we celebrate 65 years of full ordination rights to women, many women, immigrant women, women of color, disabled women, transgender women still lack access to all levels of leadership in our church. It was only five years ago we celebrated more black clergy women's election as bishops and our first openly queer bishop in the West. Beloveds, we have so much further to go. Which brings us back to Sister Hagar. She's got a ways to go before she gets free. She's othered at every turn. She's treated like property when Sarah seizes her body for productivity to produce an heir. Hagar is a problem to be solved, not a human being with dignity. Yes, we're talking about Hagar, but can we just take a minute and talk about Sarah? She's got some issues. I mean, she's a hot mess. What prevents a sisterhood from forming, what blocks solidarity from building is that Sarah is consumed by the patriarchy and believes she is entitled to more access and privilege than any other woman in that camp. Sarah embodies the interlocking systems of domination and uses it against Hagar. If you back up from the reading that was shared, just a couple verses, the event that ultimately expels Hagar from the community, leaving her and her child vulnerable, is that Sarah heard something. She heard kids at play. If we back up to chapter 21, verse 9, the Common English translation says, Sarah heard laughter. This woman holds power, holds status. But when she hears joy, maybe mirth, when she hears lightheartedness, it triggers within her frustration, resentment, and anger. Siblings in Christ, we need not stretch our imaginations very far to come up with modern day examples of when women in power were threatened by others enjoying life. Whether it's Amy Cooper calling out a bird watcher in Central Park or barbecue Becky at the local picnic or any of the countless white women who call the police on black people over trivial or non-existent offenses, let us acknowledge we have a problem. We have a problem that predates our current struggle with white supremacy. I submit to you that when Sarah heard laughter, she heard life. And the life of Ishmael was a perceived threat to the life of her son, Isaac. Another vestige, of course, of patriarchy and who could be the rightful heir. Sarah is reminded with each breath that Ishmael draws that even though she holds power, her security is at risk and she must protect it at all costs. I know many of us fall into this thinking that we must protect our own security and the security of our nuclear family at all costs. Why else would so many feel the need to police joy? Black Joy, queer joy, young joy. 
Hagar's story has important lessons to the Sarahs of the world. And in my context, liberal white women and those who experience the benefits of whiteness, who feel threatened, who live with insecurity because of the full-throated, belly-filling laughter of others, I offer this word. I offer this gospel word. The God who sees Hagar also sees you. God sees your effort. God sees the ways you've been shut down and left behind by brothers, dads, partners, and even painfully other women. God has heard your silent cries and God will not leave you barren. That is, God will not leave you without joy and without hope. And two, beloved ones who exist at intersections, who are victims of what Audre Lorde calls triple oppression, the helpless and harassed sheep of the fold, hear this good news. Just as Sarah and Abraham were promised provision, so too are Hagar and Ishmael. The verses say, don't be afraid. God has heard the boy's cry over there. Get up, pick up the boy and take him by the hand because I will make of him a great nation. Would Hagar have lived in the 20th century? I'm certain she would have picked up some Audre Lorde. And she may have even committed to memory this poem, A Litany for Survival. When we speak, we are afraid. Our words will not be heard or welcomed, but when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak, remembering we were never meant to survive. I invoke the life and witness of Audre Lorde in sharing her poem as we think about the witness of Hagar. Yes, Audre Lorde was speaking to other black lesbians like herself, but the message resonates in this story. There were forces in life that never meant for Hagar and Ishmael to survive. And yet, Hagar has a relationship with the divine. She is the only one to name God in all of scripture. In chapter 16, Hagar says to the Holy One, you are El Roy, the God who sees. This relationship allows Hagar to be seen and heard in return. For in the midst of exhaustion and desperation, having been kicked out, sent away, expelled, deported, Hagar cries out to God and weeps. But the water spent in salty tears is never wasted, for it will return to sustain her. After an encounter with the divine, water is made available to Hagar and Ishmael in the midst of the wilderness. Here lies the choice then, to run back to where they came from, to gain enough strength to get back to Abraham and Sarah's camp, or do they keep pressing on even when the path is not clear? Life-giving water is given so they can continue moving in parched places. There is someone listening today under the sound of my voice across this virtual plane who's been saved from 
given distance from, broken out of, walked away from a place where love no longer lives. And the best way to honor that gift of life-giving water is to not return to the place of death to break free of the status quo and of the ways that white supremacy and capitalism tell us that we need to make do with the scraps we're given. The good news is that when we follow a different path away from hierarchies that demean and separate toward round tables where more varieties of God's creation can gather, God will go with us and will sustain our very breath. God will keep us laughing. God will ensure we have justice and joy. Folks, we know the rest of the story. We know God fulfills all of God's promises to Hagar, Ishmael, and their descendants. When the systems and institutions tell us to wait our turn or to play by the rules that only serve the powerful few, we must trust that we can make our own way. And as we go along, We will be given what we need to survive, yes. And in the abundance of God, maybe even thrive. In the off chance you are discerning next steps, whether it's a job, ending a relationship, beginning the grueling task of healing from trauma, or continuing the work of anti-racism, the God who sees is present to us now in the form of Christ and will offer us life-sustaining water. This liberating presence will accompany you in parched places. Christ will not do the work for you, but with the help of the Holy Spirit, will give you compassion and confidence as you make your own way out. For we are all invited to experience liberation in Christ. This is what it means to be free. This is what it means to honor the Hagars of the world, not for what she can do for Sarah, but simply because she's endowed with dignity that flows from the God who sees. Will you pray with me? I offer the prayer from Cole Riley of Black Liturgies. God of full freedom, we confess that at times we only possess imagination for partial freedom. Grant us wisdom, strategy, and policies that truly are for the liberation of all. We've been asked to settle and choose our fights. We've been led by those who meet the complexity of our pain with demands for patience. Help us to become impatient with injustice. Help us to never become so acquainted with the chains of this world that we accept promises of little by little. When we speak justice, let it be a desire no smaller than the love you have for us. And we pray this in the life-sustaining name of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. May it be so. Amen.